We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I want to look this morning at just a few verses. Of course, that's what I've been doing the entire time through this particular book because I, I think there's, there's so much here. We're leading up to really what is probably, in, for me anyway, probably the most important verse in the Bible uh, in John three sixteen. 16. Uh, coming up to that. And, and yet there, there's some things here that that I, I, don't, um, I don't want you guys to miss, uh, that I think it's important for us to really pay attention to. And so I'm going to back up all the way to verse 9 and read through uh, probably just verse 18 this morning. And Nicodemus has been told that, that unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And unless someone is born of water and spirit, which is an example, an illustration that Nicodemus should have kind of zeroed in on some because he's, he is, he's referring to that which the prophet Ezekiel had, had spoken about, about being, being sprinkled or being, being washed with water and being filled with the spirit and having this newness uh, that uh, the prophet had talked about, this newness of life that, that people were Uh, be able to enter into. And Jesus even tells him not to be amazed. And and again, one of my my other favorite verses in this passage is in verse 8 where it says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So I backed up to verse 8, reading ahead. Nicodemus responded and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into your word, that you would grant us understanding, that you would grant us clarity, that you would open up uh, the minds of our hearts, let alone the minds of our bodies, to really take these things in this morning. So I pray, Lord, for a filling of your spirit upon us uh, that we may hear from you. Pray, Lord, that you would fill me as well, that you would speak through me. 
We thank you, Lord, again, just for this opportunity we have to look into your word. We pray for those that are out and that are out sick this morning. And we ask, Lord, that your healing touch would be upon them to heal their bodies, to restore their bodies, and bring them back to health. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. A couple of things that we need to remember as we look at this passage is that Jesus is answering the question of Nicodemus, how can these things be? Jesus has been talking to him, and Nicodemus, as I brought this up probably just about every week, Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what Jesus is even talking about. And yet he, he's, he's pressing in. He's asking questions. And, you know, as I thought about this, I thought about the story of the rich young ruler who was very rich and went away sorrowful because he had many goods. But he, he, didn't, he didn't press into the meaning of what Jesus was trying to tell him when Jesus said to him to, uh, to take everything he has to sell it and then to give it to the poor. But he just walked away sorrowful. Uh, Nicodemus, in this particular place anyway, doesn't really understand, but he keeps pressing in. And I think that's what's so important among other things to bring out about this passage, is the, the, the sense of, of uh, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be what? They will be filled, the scripture tells us, Matthew chapter 5. And so he's answering that question. This whole framework is, this whole conversation, I could say, the framework of the doctrine, the framework of the theology that Jesus is bringing out here, and it's immense, really, is given to us under the, the uh, setting, if you will, of Passover. And that Jesus is that Passover lamb. And it's, it's that he's going to die, uh, really, the, the, the Passover death, and then, of course, he will experience the resurrection. And then, later on, the ascension. But within this particular passage, it fascinates me because it's Jesus is already talking about his death that won't occur for another three years or so from this time that this was uh, in the passage that it was written. And he's talking about his death, but he also was talking about his glorification, although that is not necessarily seen here very obviously. It's kind of tucked in. In, more into the Greek than it is in the English, and hopefully I'll be able to unpack that um, for you this morning. And so, in verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and there is numerous debates about whether Jesus actually said that or not. Now, the thing is, the red letters, they probably are giving us what Jesus said, but they're, they're, they're also not divinely inspired, if you will. The red lettering, I mean. And so sometimes it's very obvious that Jesus said these things. Sometimes John could be interjecting, and this could be a place where John might be interjecting. I'll let you work through that any way you see fit. Um, it's still part of the passage. It's still inspired scripture. It's, it's, it's 
still something that we need to, to pay attention to, but it almost doesn't fit in this conversation. It almost sounds like somebody who's looking back uh, on, on this event many, many years later, which John would have done when he wrote his gospel. I just want to make you aware of that, and I know some of you are like, what are you talking about? But anyway, uh, kind of important to try to recognize some of these things. But nonetheless, that, that truth is there because no one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, which was really Jesus' favorite title that he used concerning himself. It's really a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. We have one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and presents to him the kingdom. Uh, right around verse 14 of Daniel chapter 7 is, is this incredible vision of the heavens. And the Ancient of Days is, of course, none other than whom? God the Father. And here you have the son, one like the Son of Man who comes before the God the Father and, and presents this kingdom to him. And, and, and it's, it's like this coronation, if you will, of the Son of Man uh, as, as it's unfolding in the book of Daniel. I don't want to go down that road this morning. But it is a veiled, in my opinion, it is a veiled claim of deity. It's not obvious. But no one has, what he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. His origin is not from this earth. Although we can go to Luke and read the birth account of Jesus, right? Of course, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And then Jesus is then formed in the womb of Mary. But Jesus' origin is from heaven. That means he's divine. He's not a created being. He's the one who created all things. In the beginning, God, which is a plural form, by the way, in the Hebrew, God created the heaven and the earth. Actually, it's plural meaning three or more type of plural. It's not really a, a two, one or more than one, two uh, in the plural. It's really a three or more plural in the, in the, in the Hebrew. And, and, of course, we've already read this in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very strong uh, professions of the deity of Jesus Christ. And so he, he's... He's saying, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe them, how, am I, I'm, how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? And, and then he, he refers not only to his, his origin, but this yearning that I believe is in, I want to say everybody, but maybe not. But I think it's a yearning in people's hearts that they want to, when they pass, they want to be in heaven. They want to go where God is. Now, I've met a few people who claim they want to go to hell. I don't know if you have. I think a few minutes after they got there, they would probably within a few seconds after they got there, they would probably change their mind. 
I'm not going to bother to explain that. But I, I think there's that yearning for us because I, in reality, it, it, this idea of heaven, and there's different views on heaven, and I'm not going to chase those down this morning either, but I think it's really that yearning for us to want to go back to the garden, to the Garden of Eden, and to be in that place of fellowship where we, humanity, walk with God in the cool of the day as it's implied in the book of Genesis in the early chapters. And so he, he's, he's, again, he's already brought this out once to Nicodemus when he told him you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are what? Born again. Seeing the kingdom of God, which as I brought to you, uh, really is only used here in this passage in the book of John. It's all over the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but... Uh, John likes to refer to eternal life. And most people that I've met too, they really, if you really start talking to them, they really desire to live eternally. They really desire to have eternal life. And, and I think those things are built into us and they are part of how God created us. And so I, I think here Jesus again now a second time is, is, is attempting to speak to that longing that God has built into humanity, both with Nicodemus and then to each of us as we read this uh, through the ages, through the, through, the, through the period of time that has been available for us. And so he tells him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what is he talking about? He's using an Old Testament. Anytime you hear Moses, when you hear the name Moses in the New Testament, where should your mind go? At least Torah. Moses is the author of Torah, first five books of the Bible. And so he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, what is he talking about? It's recorded for us in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're going to take a look at that real quick. Numbers, chapter 21. I'll start around verse 4. Says, then they, that is the children of Israel, journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So they're having to take this, this roundabout, taking the long way home, so to speak, uh, route to go around Edom because they were not to go through Edom. Edom, by the way, is from the line of Esau. And the people became very discouraged. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And it says, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. What's the worthless bread that they're talking about? The manna. The manna that all they had to do was go out and gather it how many times a week? Six times a week. And on the, on the 
sixth day they were to gather excuse, they were to gather uh, twice as much because on the seventh day they didn't get any manna and they rested so they ate of what they had gathered the day before incidentally as I think about this I hope we have manna in heaven I want to taste it I want to see what this well, I'd like to see what it tastes I bet it was good it's just my thoughts but but they referred to it as worthless now think about that it's the bread of heaven. They didn't work for it. Later on, Jesus or the Lord will talk through the prophets and, and talk about how your fathers gathered manna. You didn't work for it. You didn't toil for it. It was just put out there for it, for you to, to take. And what are they doing? They're calling it worthless. Now, of course, we never see this kind of stuff today now, do we? Of course we do. Notice at first they were discouraged. They were discouraged. And I I thought this was really fascinating because we live in a day. uh, I think we live in a day where it's very easy to be discouraged. And I think it's also not only very easy to be discouraged, but that could be our first response at times when we watch the news. And maybe sometimes we ought to just turn the news off. Although I like watching the weather, right? I want to know what's going. I want to know what's coming in, right? I like the weather reports and then, you know, but, but there's a lot, I think, out there to discourage us as Christians. And then we have to take the long way home. We want to go from point A to point B. Straightest distance between two points is what? You guys know this, a straight line. And particularly, we're moderns. We're wired this way. Our culture is wired this way. We, we want to do it efficiently. We want to do it correctly. We want to do it quickly. We want to finish whatever it is that we're going through and get on to the next thing. Isn't that right? That's how we're wired. And God, for their own benefit, takes the long way home with them. Think of that Super Tramp song. But anyway, um, some of you remember. Um, but often, I think it is, when God gives us a detour, that might be another way to look at this. When God gives us a detour, it's purposeful. God does not oversee our lives through just happenstance. It feels that way at times, doesn't it? And there are times that you want to give God a consult, don't you? And say, well, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. You told me to do this. You opened the door for me. I stepped through it, and then what happens? The roof falls in. Isn't that fun? They were in a place where they could have developed incredible insight into their own relationship with God, insight into their own souls. But because they became discouraged, and when I think of discouragement, I'm going to say this now. You'll understand in a moment why I'm going to say this and where I'm going with it. From the outside looking in, There is nothing more discouraging than your leader dying on a cross. 
which is what Jesus, remember we are in John, not in Numbers, but anyway, that is what Jesus is talking about here. So God decided he needed to teach them a lesson and he is angry with them. Because they badmouth Moses, they badmouth the food, they spoke against, the God, against God, it tells us. And it says, therefore, verse 7, the people came to Moses. Oh, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses, verse 7, and said, we have sinned. In other words, they came to their senses. We have spoken against the Lord. We have spoken against Yahweh. We have spoken against you. And pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Isn't that funny how we are as people? It's not funny. It's tragic. But it is who we are. That often it is that we have to be bitten before we repent. And to me, I'm thinking, I bet you they knew exactly what they were doing when they were doing it when they were complaining, when they were speaking against God, when they were speaking against Moses, when they were whining about the, uh, uh, the manna. And I have to wonder, and yes, I am speculating here, so your mileage is probably going to vary, so I'm warning you, but I have to wonder if they were not being presumptuous upon the grace of God. I think one of the worst presumptions upon the grace of God that I ever read about, I think it was Voltaire, um, who I think professed to be an atheist anyway, but nonetheless, he, he said about God, God will forgive me, it's his job. Which is about as an evil as a thing that I think that you can comprise in your thinking. It's his job. Boy, talk about something that's loaded with vile and sarcasm and, and, and really hatred. But I, I wonder if the children of Israel did not presume about God and they, 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 they just had to vent. And I think at times we've got to vent. Uh, I, there are certain prayers that I prayed to God that I would never repeat to any of you. because they're a bit colorful, we might say. How's that? But I want to be careful to not speak against the Lord. I want to be careful to not speak about the situation that God has placed me in. And they get bit by snakes, and some of them die. They're fiery serpents, and we don't know exactly what that means, but it could have been that the venom was such when it entered them, it burned. That could have been exactly what was going on, right? So they go to Moses, and they confess. We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord, so pray for us. So the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Pretty simple. 
in many respects, Moses fastens this serpent out of bronze, and he puts it up on a pole, and so basically it's on this pole, so he picks it up so everyone can see it, and the Lord said anyone who would just look at the serpent, that they would be healed. Sounds simple, doesn't it? I think it is simple. But it is so simple that at times it requires an incredible amount of humility to actually obey the simple request. Because we'd rather do something harder. Or we'd rather do something that required more of us. We'd rather do something that Hey, hopefully some people are watching. They say, wow, he's really doing a good job doing that, whatever that is, right? I think there's value in, in, in even the, the, the discipline, spiritual discipline of, pen, of penance, but I think that's something that's done privately. And when we try to make our repentance about us instead of about God, then it's not really repentance. It becomes a form of spiritual grandstanding. And the Lord simply said to them, look on the serpent and you'll be healed. That's the story that Jesus is mining from in his conversation with Nicodemus that essentially sets up what he will proclaim in verse 16 when he says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the framework that he is working with. A very simple act of obedience. And the Israelites trajectory on their lives was changed from the impending death and they were restored to life. Instead of dying, they were healed and therefore given life. It's the same idea of Jesus when he is lifted up. Because the interesting thing is that, and you guys probably all know this, the serpent is, in the Bible, often a sign for what? Sin. Sin. But isn't it funny here that in Numbers 21 that, that the Lord tells Moses to make a serpent, and put it up, and let them look at it. When they look at it, they'll be healed. Can he do that? If sin, the serpent is a sign for sin, can God do that? Can God do whatever he wants? God help us to take him out of the box that we have constructed for him. And just let him be God. Let him be who he is. And even in saying that, I'm thinking, and I don't always like what he does. I really don't. But I go back to what Jesus said when he asked that question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then do not do the things that I say? 
The snake is a symbol of sin. Bronze is a metal, right? In the Bible, it is symbolic of judgment. Judgment. So what the Lord is setting up here, and he did it all the way back in the book of Numbers, 1,500 plus years before Jesus even came on the scene, and he's setting up a picture for us to understand that when the Son of Man is lifted up, that is when sin will be judged. That's what he's saying. And so he uses the term. This, to me, this, it gets better, all right? This is really a fascinating little, little portion here. Because Jesus is connecting himself with the serpent that was lifted up, that when they simply believed and looked at the serpent, they were healed. He's, he is comparing himself to that serpent, if you will, in the fact that he will be lifted up as well. Now, this verb, this is where it gets fascinating to me. The verb lifted up. It's only used four times in the Gospel of John. Chapters 8, chapters 12. Um, it's always used in, in, in really a, in combination or as an illustration of Jesus physically being lifted up on the cross. You can go to John 8.28 or John 12.32 and 34 and look at that and you'll, you'll, you'll see that that's the case because of time. I'm not going to turn there, although I have them in front of me. Um, what's interesting that in the Gospel of John, it is not even until John 19 that the word crucified is even used. When John, remember again, Inspired by the Holy Spirit. But John was an incredible writer. And he, he, when he refers to the cross in these earlier chapters, he uses the term lifted up. Because that's what Jesus used. He uses the term, he talks about himself being lifted up. Again, a comparison back to Numbers 21, using that story as an illustration of what Jesus would do for the world, for God so loved the world. What's interesting here too is this idea of being lifted up. We see this in the book of Isaiah, but to backtrack just a touch, this word can literally mean to lift something up physically, like I lifted up my Bible, okay? Um, I'm getting flashbacks on that one, but I won't go there with you this morning. Um, Something that you physically lift up, this word can also mean to enhance. It can mean to exalt. It can mean to glorify. Physically lifting up or exalting and glorifying. Jesus used the perfect word to describe his work on the cross. Now, Isaiah even uses this combination. I'm not going to 
bothered to turn there, but Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, where it talks about the suffering servant, where it, it uses two themes, really, besides the suffering that the serpent, excuse me, the servant, that is Jesus, will go through, there are two primary themes in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. One is that the Son of Man will be lifted up, or the serpent, excuse me, servant uh, will be lifted up. And that the servant, I had to really keep think about that that time, will be glorified. Lifted up and glorified. It's really, now remember, Isaiah's in Hebrew, it's not in Greek. But in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. I will read to Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, look, my child will understand and be raised up or lifted up and be magnified exceedingly. Lifted up and magnified exceedingly. And that's how this suffering servant song begins. So Jesus is very strongly not only using the illustration in Numbers 21 of the serpent, but he's hearkening back to the servant song of Isaiah, and he's identifying himself with the suffering servant. Because he can be lifted up, and he can also be exalted. Because, again, he's the one who came from heaven. All right, he's the one who came from heaven. Now, so, so how is he going to be glorified? Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke basically sees the crucifixion as kind of this temporary pre-work of his glorification when he is resurrected. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also talk about his glorification when what? When he returns. John primarily talks about his glorification at the cross with his work on the cross. Now, he talks about other parts of his glorification, and I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to chase those down for you. But John focuses on the glorification of Jesus while he was on the cross. And we, we see that given to us in John 12. We see that given to us in John 13. We see that given to us also in John 17, which I will read to you, John 17, just the first verse. It says, Jesus spoke these words. He's about to go to the cross. This is after Judas, by the way, has left from the Last Supper, and it goes out and get to betray him. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. He's speaking about the cross. Earlier in John 12, he, the Greeks want to see Jesus and you have this voice of the Father from heaven saying, I'm going to glorify you again, son. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing it. 
But John is pretty clear that, that the cross is that place of glorification. Now, now this, this really strikes me because this is the one who came down from heaven. Okay, let's keep it in the context of the third chapter. This is the one who came down from heaven. This is the one who will be lifted up. This is the one who will be exalted. This is the one who will be glorified. But he does so through the suffering on the cross. Remember what I said earlier from the outside looking at the cross? That's very discouraging. He had one of his chosen apostles at the foot of the cross with him. And, of course, it was John. And the women. (laughs) It's part of why I think the women are get all the front row seats in heaven. I can't decide whether the whether pastors or the apostles are going to be in. Anyway, never mind. Um, actually, they're sitting on thrones probably, but that's another story for another time. But what really strikes me is Jesus in his glorification... Jesus in glorifying himself and in glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying him is done within the realm of suffering. And it, it, it is there on the cross that he probably more than anything else reveals his love for humanity. John Stott, who I, he wrote a book, I recommend it, The Cross of Christ. John Stott, S-T-O-T-T. He writes, really it's on the back of his book. Um, He says, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. Now think about that. Of all the difficulty, all the suffering, all the turmoil, all the things that absolutely do not make sense, And, and then all the voices, I've been paying attention to that as I'm reading through Proverbs, all the voices that, that say, come and be with us, come and take part of us, come and, come and, come and throw your lot in with us, come and be a, be a part of who we are. Voices uh, that, are, that, uh, that are out there that are calling you to not be followers of Jesus, but to follow the flow of the world. And we have a God who demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us, suffers for us. He endures the indignity of the cross including all that went before it. He establishes himself and his right to be our God. Not by bullying us. Not by threatening us. 
but by loving us and demonstrating that love so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Just as the Israelites, if they simply looked at the serpent, when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, they simply trusted in that word. Simply look and you'll be healed. Jesus is telling us, simply believe. Simply trust in him. And you'll have eternal life. See, eternal life is really is, is given to all those who look upon Jesus. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It, it's just really that simple, but the simplicity of the gospel can be an affront to our own personal pride. And therein lies the problem why people will not follow Jesus because it just it, it, it's too simple. It's too good to be true. But I think when, they, when people really grasp that God in heaven who created all things, who really could have this any way he wants, right? Do whatever he wants. I mean, if he, tomorrow, and he won't do this, of course, but tomorrow he could wake up and decide he's going to turn the earth into a basketball, right? And just kind of shoot some hoops until he gets tired of that. God who can do whatever he wants demonstrates not only his love, but our, and this I don't get, but how valuable we must be to God. You ever think about that? Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. How valuable we must be to God that Jesus, God in the flesh, would come and suffer and die for us that we might have eternal life. If we simply believe, if we simply trust. And believing and trusting means I may not have it all figured out, but I know enough to be able to place my trust in Jesus. Like, as I've told you guys this before, when I was eight years old and became a Christian, I didn't understand John 3.16 from John 16.3. But I knew Jesus loved me. And I knew that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I remember even back then, the, the, the sense of almost embarrassment and humility, the fact that God would go through an incredible amount of suffering for me. And, and, and not understanding why. Not understanding that the calling of the Christian, which I learned later, <laughs> To take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow him? 
the calling that we have in Philippians chapter 2 of the fellowship, the sharing of his suffering. And I'll leave you with this. What Jesus demonstrates on the cross is the fact that not only that he loves us, but he is calling us to live a life as his disciples under a completely different paradigm than the world lives. And to me, that, as a Christian, this side of the cross, this side of being in a place where I've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and I thank God so much that I'm saved, and, and, and yet recognizing the reality is, if Jesus died and suffered on the cross for you, then the reality is all the rules have changed. They really have. And I'm going to stop, but I really want to go for another 20 minutes. But I think we really are, this should challenge us to really start to consider even more what Luke chapter 9 said when it said, and I've already referred to it, but take up your cross daily, deny yourselves, and follow him. It's a completely different set of ethics, rules, paradigms, cultural understanding. And we take our cues, we are called to take our cues, not from what the world gives us, not from what we feel even inside when we watch the news and get all angry. Or we sit around and talk about things that are happening in the world and we get all angry. But we, we take our, our cues from that which the Lord has given us of what it means in his word to follow him and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Amen.